Amen, amen. If you would, please, just take our Bibles. Have them ready for study. It's good to be here. And I appreciate another opportunity to preach God's Word here at Whitfield Baptist Church. Before we get started, let me just tell you a little bit um, of news about my parents. As many of you all know, they're missionaries to, um, to help missionaries out all over the world who need to come off the field, whether it be for a medical emergency or for uh, furlough. Um, they go to the churches where they're at all over the world and help keep the church going. One problem for uh, missionaries is when they come off the field for furlough or for a medical emergency, uh, many times they don't have anybody that's equipped or able to keep the church going. And when they go back, they've got to put in a lot more work of trying to find everybody who's fallen away, of getting the church back up and running again. So it comes to be a big help what my parents are doing. They left Kiribati, where they were in the South Pacific, on Monday and flew to Fiji. And they'll be there for a few months helping out um, at Harvest Baptist Church on the island of Fiji. And um, they're looking forward to helping the pastor there, the missionary there, as he um, comes off the field. If, it would be greatly appreciated if you would be praying for them as they are over there. And uh, they are about eight out, well, they are 16 hours ahead of us. And the way I always do it is I look at the time, subtract eight hours, and add that to tomorrow. And that's where they're at. So it's 11.30. It's 11.30 tomorrow in Fiji. And so um, keep my parents in prayer. And uh, they are very excited about being able to, to do the Lord's work there. After, that, after they're in Fiji, they're flying to another island nation closer to the equator called Nauru. Nauru. And don't ask me where that is or what the country's about. It's the third, I believe, the third smallest country in the world. And uh, they are very excited about being able to go to that nation as well. So keep them in your prayers. They, um, they greatly appreciate them. All right. Last week, we had a message on why I am not a Calvinist, dealing with the problems um, with the five points of Calvinism, or the tulip of Calvinism, as some people call it. Uh, when dealing with that, of course, we're talking about um, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. While there are some aspects of those that we as Baptists would agree with, I do not hold to any point of Calvinism. There are issues with each one that I would not hold to all of them. Neither am I an Arminian. Many times they say, if you're a Calvinist, if you're not a Calvinist, then they lump you as an Arminian. I am not an Arminian. There are things I agree with, with Arminianism, but I do not believe that you can lose your salvation. That is, um, un, that is not a biblical doctrine. The Bible says that I give unto you, if you are saved, He says, I give unto you eternal life. And when you consider when you receive that eternal life, you receive it immediately upon salvation. It's not something you receive when you get to heaven. You receive eternal life immediately. And simply put, if you lose your salvation, it would be an impossibility because if you lose your salvation, then you never had eternal life that Jesus Christ promised to give you because your life came to an end. Jesus also promises that everyone who believes, who is saved, shall never perish in the book of John. But if you lose your salvation, then you do perish. Thus, I do not believe in the doctrine of Arminianism. 
Jesus also said that whoever the Father gives him that he puts into his hand, that is every born-again believer, no man can pluck them out of his hand nor pluck them out of the Father's hand. If that is the case, then I, being a man, cannot pluck myself out of the Father's hand. No, you cannot lose your salvation. So when we look at both these views, let me just remind you that Calvinism, the belief in very strongly on God's sovereignty, we're going to deal with that today. There is no free will for man. Every action you make has already been predetermined from the beginning of time, before time began, by God. That's one extreme. The other extreme is Arminianism where free will is emphasized to such an extent, the free will of man is emphasized to such an extent that one can choose to be saved, of course, but also you have the free will through choosing to live a wicked life to lose your salvation. That is the other extreme. We as born-again believers should always, when we come to believing God's Word and the doctrines of God's Word, not go to any extreme, but find a balance. Seek out not what man says concerning a certain issue, but seek out what does God's Word have to say. And that's what we're going to do tonight. I encourage you to get um, this, uh, this outline, because there's a lot of verses that we'll be going through. And it'll save you from having to write them all down, and um, it'll be helpful for you to be able to take and study later on if you're dealing with some issues with this. Let me give you just a little bit more of a review. We're dealing with Calvinism. It is a teaching that's beginning to find a large following in Baptist churches today. Calvinism is a system of theology named after the French theologian and reformer John Calvin. As I said last week, John Calvin is not the one who came up with Calvinism. He just, um, it was just named after him. The roots of Calvinism go all the way back to the uh, 5th century with the 5th century theologian Augustine. Um, if you've ever been to St. Augustine, Florida, it is named after that theologian. He's the one that came up with the system of belief that we know today as Calvinism. Now, Calvinism places a strong emphasis, as I've already mentioned, on the sovereignty of God. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Baptist churches who hold to Calvinism are known as Particular Baptists, um, Reformed Baptists, Sovereign Grace Baptists, and Primitive Baptists. Other Calvinistic Baptist churches will say that they teach the doctrines of grace. If you ever hear a church that says that they teach or practice the doctrines of grace, what they are saying is they are Calvinistic in belief. On the other side of the spectrum, we've already mentioned, is a system of theology called Arminianism named after the Dutch theologian Jacob Harmons. And um, Arminianism places a strong emphasis on the free will of man, so much so that a Christian, through the choice to live a wicked life, can lose his salvation. Arminian Baptist churches are called free will Baptists, if you've ever heard of those churches. We will not deal much with Arminianism today. Our focus is on Calvinism. First, it needs to be said again, that Calvinists and Arminians are Christians. Let me just stop right there for a minute. Calvinists and Arminians are Christians. We are not dealing with groups such as the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. 
that deny the nature of Jesus Christ, the deity of Jesus Christ, or salvation in Jesus' name. We're not dealing with cults in that idea. We are dealing with false teaching that still lies within the body of Christ. Um, Calvinists and Arminians both hold to the belief that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. They also believe and um, trust in His death, burial, and resurrection. They believe in the gospel. We are not talking about people who are unsaved. It is not an issue with salvation per se. What Calvinism and Arminianism deal with is how God works out His plan of salvation. The problem with Calvinism is not that one who believes in it loses his salvation or is not saved. The problem is this, that Calvinism strangles the missionary outreach of a church, both in its local and global arenas, and it low-rates the love of God. Stopping right there for a minute, let me give you an example of that. Um, how many of y'all in this room have ever heard of the missionary William Carey? William Carey. He was a, um, a person who worked on shoes. He repaired shoes. He made shoes. He was a cobbler. That's what his, um, his, um, his career was. His occupation was at the end of the 18th century, the 1700s. William Carey had an intense desire to see people all around the world be saved. As a poor cobbler in his little cobbler shop, he put up a map of the world. He saved up his money and bought a map of the world and put it up, and he prayed as he worked on his shoes that God would send someone to the people of India. He was a man who lived in England, and India was part of the British Empire. He had a desire to see India come to Christ. He prayed that God would send someone. And you know what? God decided to send someone. He didn't send anyone else but the one who had been praying for India, William Carey. Many of y'all know this, that William Carey is considered the father of modern missions. Every missionary that goes out today, including my parents in the island of Fiji, can trace their endeavors back to the work of William Carey. William Carey, when he went to the, um, the churches of England in his day, said, I desire to go to India to preach the gospel so that the people of India might be saved. And do you know what the response of the preachers were in his day? They were Calvinists. In fact, they were hyper-Calvinists. They told William Carey this. They said, if God wants India to be saved, then He will do it. Do not go there and preach the gospel. What stopped them? Was it because they did not believe that salvation was good? No, every one of those preachers would say, I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What stopped them from allowing William Carey to go to, the gospel, to India to preach the gospel at that time was their strong Calvinistic view. Calvinism strangles the missionary outreach of the church. And thus, to take a look at it, for our church, you're going to be running into people in Dalton, Georgia, and in the surrounding area who are becoming Calvinistic, and they're going to talk to you about these things. I want you to understand why we at Whitfield Baptist Church are not Calvinists. We have a Bible reason, and I think it will be helpful for us to understand it a little better. 
If you have not listened to the message, you were not here Wednesday, let me encourage you to go online and listen to last week's message. Uh, if you want the outline, um, I believe there are some still around here in the church. I do not know where they are now, but if you cannot find one, see me after church and I will make sure you get an outline from last week's message. It is a good thing to keep. We're going to look today at the problems with the Calvinistic view of God's sovereignty. First thing we want to know is this. What is the sovereignty of God? What are we talking about when we say that God is sovereign? Well, the answer is this. Sovereignty is an attribute of God based upon the premise that God as the creator of heaven and earth has absolute right and full authority to do or allow whatever He desires. In other words, God can do whatever He wants. Do you believe that? I believe that. I'm not, I don't deny that. I believe in the sovereignty of God. I am not a Calvinist, but I agree with that statement. He is the Creator, and who am I to tell God what He can or cannot do? I am just a man. I am a creature. I am the creation. He is God. He is the Creator. And He has every right and power to do whatever He desires. We all believe that as, um, as Christians. But let me show you in the Bible where we see that. If you would, let's take our Bibles and turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Job. The book of Job, chapter number 42. Job, chapter number 42. I like to hear those Bible pages turning. Don't take my word for it. Let's see the Bible say it. Job, chapter number 42. If you're having a hard time finding Job... You find the book of Psalms, which is slap dad in the middle of the Bible. You find the book of Psalms, Job is the book right before it. Job chapter number 42, we're going to look at verse 1. The Bible says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Notice that statement he made in verse 2. He said, I know that thou canst do what? Everything. There is nothing that God cannot do. Wouldn't you agree with that? Whatever God chooses to do, He will do. Now some of y'all would be really quick to answer me and say, no, that's not true. God cannot lie. God cannot sin. Exactly, I agree with that. But God does whatever He wants to do. God doesn't want to lie. He doesn't want to contradict Himself. He doesn't want to sin. He doesn't contradict Himself. As God, He does everything He pleases to do, He desires to do. And thus, since lying is not part of His game plan, and nothing He wants to do, He doesn't do it. But He can do everything He chooses to do. This isn't the only place we see this. Let's turn now to the book of Psalms. We're going to go to Psalm 135, the very next book in your Bible. Psalm 135. Psalm 135, we're looking at verse 6. Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that he, did He in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all the deep places. Notice, what did God do in heaven, in earth, 
in the seas, in the deep places. What did he do? He did what he pleased. Why did he do that? Because he's sovereign. He has the power to do what he pleases. Let's go a little bit further. The next book of the Bible, the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16. I find this to be a very interesting verse. Look at verse number 4. Proverbs 16, verse 4. The Lord hath made all things for Himself. Notice the next statement. Yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Now what this is saying is, God has made everything for His glory. Now it's not saying that He made wicked people. He did not make people to be wicked. He did not create somebody and say, you know what? There's Adolf Hitler. I'm going to make him the meanest, most wicked man the world had ever seen. That is not what God is saying here. What God is saying is that He does everything He pleases. He even takes the wicked of the world. They serve His purpose as well. Even though they're in rebellion to God, they become an example of His glory and His justice and His majesty when they are punished for their sin. By the way, everybody meets punishment for their sins. Nobody gets away with sin. Some people say, well, didn't O.J. get away? He got off for murder, didn't he? He may have gotten off with murder with the criminal system of the United States. He hasn't gotten away with it with God. And one day, every man will stand and stand accountable for their wicked deeds. God says He does what He pleases. Even the wicked that are in rebellion to Him are still to fall into His purpose and in His plan. Let's go to the next verse. If you would, let's turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah. Isaiah chapter number 46. This will be our last verse dealing with the sovereignty of God. I just want to make sure you understand it well. Verse number 9, Isaiah 45, 9. Great verse, by the way, if you're dealing with someone in Mormonism. Listen to this verse. Remember the former things of old, for I am God... There and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. We're not dealing with Mormonism, but we have a little bit of time. Let me just say, Mormonism teaches that there is not just one God, there are many gods. That God at one time was a man who through his good life attained Godhood. And if you become a good Mormon and follow the teachings of Joseph Smith, maybe one day you too, men can become a God. Ladies, you can't become a God. You just become a wife to a God and you stay eternally pregnant. You get your own planet, your own planet, and you have spirit babies throughout all eternity populating your planet with people. And those people one day, if they live a good life, can become gods themselves. You laugh, but that is what Mormonism teaches. I am not making it up. But look at what God says here in the book of Isaiah. Joseph Smith says there's many gods. But God says in Isaiah, I am God and there is none else. 
That shoots Mormonism down right there. Great verse if you ever talk to someone in Mormonism. But let's go on to verse number 10 now. Look at this. After God explained to us who He is, He says this, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. Think about that for a minute. God's new and God declared what's going to happen. The very end, from the very beginning. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done. That means what you're going to do tomorrow, God already knows about it. He knows exactly what you're going to do. And notice the next statement. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. This speaks to the sovereignty of God. What does God do? He does His pleasure. What He is pleased to do. What He desires to do. That is what He does. And that is the sovereignty of God. No Christian, Calvinist, Arminian, or anyone in between, denies that God is sovereign. Everyone believes it. Even the most dyed-in-the-wool Arminian will tell you that God is sovereign. The problem for Calvinism is this, how they reconcile it to the free will of man. To the free will of man. Since we're dealing with Calvinism, let me give you a quote from John Calvin. John Calvin said this concerning sovereignty and free will. Men do nothing save at the secret instigation of God and do not discuss and deliberate on anything but what he has said at what he has previously decreed with himself and brings to pass by his secret discretion. What is he saying there? He says everything that you do, everything you do, from shaving in the morning to the curse word you yelled at the car that cut you off this morning to the wicked thoughts you had as you were sitting at your desk of sitting there and thinking, I'm just going to sit here and relax and not do any work for the next 30 minutes to your good deeds, the fact that you came to church, the fact years ago that you accepted Jesus Christ, every single thing you do was secretly, without your knowledge, and you don't even realize it, was already decreed by God, and you do everything that God wants you to do. You do everything that God wants you to do. Now, that's a problem. That's a problem. And before I explain to you what the problem is, I want to make sure you understand what the free will of man is. Okay, so I'm going to answer that question. What is the free will of man? I've already told you what the sovereignty of God is. What is the free will of man? Here's the definition. While God is all-knowing and always knows what choices each person will make, He still gives them the ability to choose or not choose everything, regardless of where, whether there are any internal or external factors contributing to that choice. Simply said, the free will of man is... You choose what it is that you're going to do. It is not predetermined. You are not a puppet 
You are not a robot. You do whatever you want to do. Now, everyone will agree with this. There is no such thing as 100% free will. God does not give 100% free will. We'll talk about that in just one minute. But what Calvinism teaches is this. Even though we don't realize it, there is no such thing as free will. Calvinism says man does not have a free will. Here's what John Calvin had to say about it. He said free will is an empty term. It has no meaning. It's just a word that we say. It is not true. It has no basis. And their argument for this is, number one, we see in the Bible that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Anybody remember that in the Bible? When Moses went to him, the Bible says that God hardened his heart. Also, don't we also know that God chose Judas to betray Jesus? Remember that? He says, have I not chosen you twelve and one of you? is a devil. How he said in John chapter number 6, he said, Jesus knew from the beginning who would not believe him and who would betray him. Talking about Judas. We both know that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and God chose Judas to betray him. However, saying that, I want you to understand something about Judas. God did not make Judas a thief or a liar. Even though God chose Judas, He did not make him the thief or the liar that he was. What God did was, He used a wicked man to complete His purpose. But He did not make him wicked. Judas chose to be wicked. Judas chose to lie. Judas chose to steal. And also concerning Pharaoh, remember this, that Pharaoh first hardened his own heart Five times before the Bible says that the Lord hardened his heart. In other words, God took a man who had already made a choice to rebel against God and used him for his purpose. It is not an example of man having no free will. What we believe here at this church is this. We believe that man has a limited, a limited free will. Can I give you an example of how the free will of man is exercised in the Bible? There is no place where you'll see in the Bible where God declares man has a free will. But we can see examples of it. Let's take our Bibles now and turn to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter number 23. Matthew chapter number 23. Jesus is speaking in verse number 37. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wing, and ye would not. We see the free will of man exercised here because Jesus said that his desire was to do what? To gather Jerusalem unto him, to take him under his wing." to be the Savior of them. But what did Jerusalem do? Did they do God's will? No, Jesus desired to have them, but what did they do? They wouldn't come. I desire you to come to me. And what did Jerusalem say? I will not. 
We see here in Matthew 23, verse 37, that man has the free will to choose to do things that God does not desire them to do. We see free will in action. However, it is not unrestrained free will. There are limits to free will. We see this in, um, let's go to the book of Exodus, second book of the Bible. We've already talked about Pharaoh. But let's look at it here. Exodus chapter number 10, verse number 1. Exodus 10, 1. It says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go in unto Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I might show these my signs before him. Right here we see that man has limits to his free will. If God is sovereign says, I'm going to use you, you're going to do his purpose because he's God. And it's not only man who's in rebellion to God that God puts limits on. We also see it with Satan himself. Look at Job chapter number 1. Job chapter number 1. You know this story. Job is a good man. One of the finest men that ever lived next to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he was such a good man that God used him as an example to Satan. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing that God could use us as an example to the world for our goodness and our living? I wish I could be like Job. Job is um, declared as a good man before Satan. Satan says, "Ah, oh, God, you don't understand. I would love you and do everything you told me to if you made me healthy and you gave me riches and children like you gave Job. And so God says, well, Satan, how about this? You do whatever you want with him. Look at this. Satan says in verse number 11 concerning Job, But put forth thy hand now, and touch all he hath, and he, Job, will curse thee to thy face. You take away his stuff, and you're going to see how quick his loyalty is to you. And look what God says to verse 12. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. So God said, you want to try this out, Satan? Fine. You can take everything he has from him, but you can't touch him. You can't touch his body. Satan's in rebellion to God. After all, wasn't it because he would not obey God that he rebelled against him and he was cast down from, uh, from heaven? But what does the Bible say here? God told Satan what he could and could not do. And guess what? Satan had to do what God told him to do. And why is that? Because God is sovereign. And even though he gives a free will, there are limits to the free will that God gives. So understand, we believe that we have a free will, but it is limited, okay? God won't let us do everything. For example... Adolf Hitler wanted to kill every Jew in the world. Was he able to do it? No, because that was not part of God's plan. God put a stop to it. There are limits to what we can do. However, we do have a free will. Calvinism says we have no free will. And there are problems that come from it. So let's look at this right now. What is the problem with the Calvinistic view that God has already from the beginning of time decreed and determined everything that we do. Number one, 
The problem with it is this. It turns God into a monster. It turns God into a monster. Many times when people talk about Calvinism and they proclaim Calvinism, they never carry it. Most people that you see that talk about Calvinism, they've read probably a book by John Piper. He's one of the leading Calvinistic um, expositors today. Read some sermons maybe by John MacArthur or an A.W. Pink, and they feel that they're just an expert in Calvinism. But they've never thought through everything that Calvinism teaches. I want you to think about this. If there is no free will and God planned everything, then God plans such things as the Holocaust, rape, and child molestation. God planned it. When you do it, you do it according to God's pleasure because He decreed everything you would do before you ever existed. And don't think that I'm just making this up. In John Piper's book, he's, as I said, he's a, one of the leading Calvinists, the book is Suffering in the Sovereignty of God. One of the contributing authors, Mark Talbot, writes, God brings about all things in accordance with His will. It isn't just that God manages to turn the evil aspects of our world to good for those that love Him. No, it is rather that He Himself brings about these evil aspects. This includes God having even brought about the Nazis' brutality at Birkenau and Auschwitz as well as the terrible killings of Dennis Rader, some of you may remember a few years back, the BTK killer, serial killer, and even the sexual abuse of a young child. What they claim is, God even decrees that those things be done. Let's go a little bit further. Gordon H. Clark, another leading Calvinist, says this, I wish very frankly and pointedly to assert that if a man gets drunk and shoots his family, it was the will of God that he should do it. He goes on to assert, let it be unequivocally said that this view certainly makes God the cause of sin. God is the sole ultimate cause of everything. There is absolutely nothing independent of Him. He alone is the eternal being. He alone is omnipotent. He alone is sovereign. He also says, some people who do not wish to extend God's power over evil things, and particularly over moral evils, the Bible therefore explicitly teaches that God creates sin. Now you may be thinking in your head, where in the world does the Bible say that God creates sin? First, before we go any further, does this sound like the God you worship? A God that would decree for the rape of a child, the God that would decree the Holocaust, the God that would decree all the murders by every serial killer that's ever walked the face of this earth, does this sound like the God you worship? Well, Gordon Clark says God created sin. Where does he get that? Let's look very quickly in the Bible. If you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 45. I want to show you the verse that he gets this idea from. He's wrong, but let me show you the verse. Isaiah 45, verse number 7. I'm going to read verse 6 to make sure you know who's speaking. Isaiah 45, verse 6, That they may know from the rising of the sun 
and from the west, that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. So they look at right there and they say, there you go. The Bible says that He creates evil. The only problem with it is, does the Bible say right here in verse number 7, I form the light and create darkness. I make good and create evil. Does it say that? No, what does it contrast evil with? Peace. What is Isaiah talking about here? Is he talking about evil as in sinful deeds? No. Have you ever heard when a disaster or calamity falls on you, somebody say, you know what? Evil struck me. We've had something evil happen. When we talk about maybe destruction even by a hurricane or an invading army, an evil has befallen upon us. What God is referring to here in the book of Isaiah, He's referring to that God makes peace and God also makes war. If the children of Israel does what God says and obeys Him, guess what they will have? They'll have peace. But if God disobeys, then what does God do? He raises up someone to come. In Isaiah's day, what he's talking about here is the Babylonian army. They're going to come. And they're going to spoil. They're going to cause chaos. They're going to destroy. And what's going to happen is evil is going to befall in that respect upon the land. They're going to receive a disaster. This is not talking about the creation of sin. What it's talking about is God can either bless or God can curse. God can either reward the righteous or He can punish the wicked. He has the power to do both. It is not talking about the creation of sin. In fact, there have been church councils, groups of people that have got together to make the statement for their denominations that if anyone ever says that God created evil, that they should be driven out of their church. Why? Because that should be beyond the scope of anyone's thinking that God would ever create or make evil happen in this world. However, Calvinists teach that it has to be this way. It has to be this way. Why does it have to be this way? It's because of this. God must have planned these things, including the Holocaust, including rape, including child molestation, because if He didn't, these evil actions would have no purpose. That's what they say. They would become purposeless. Well, evil actions have a purpose. Why do people do evil things? Because they have evil intent. But God can take evil intent and turn it into good. God actively planned, did not actively plan and purpose the evil we see in the world, But let me tell you, God actively uses the evil for His good purposes. Which one sounds better to you? Or which one sounds more like the God you worship? That God caused every wicked thing to happen? He planned it, He decreed it, He knew it, and He made sure it would happen. Even the molestation or rape of a child. Or does it sound better that God can even take wicked things and use those wicked things to come out for your good? After all, we know Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. But also, do you remember the book of Genesis, chapter number 50, 
the last chapter of the book of Genesis. Jacob dies. The uh, 12 brothers and their families are living in Egypt with Joseph. And Jacob dies. And what they kind of figure is, we're getting a scene from some mob movie. You know, don't do anything to them until my parents die. Then we'll handle them when we need to. Jacob's dead. And now the brothers all think, Joseph is now going to make us pay for what we did long, long ago. But when Joseph realizes what they're thinking, here's what Joseph has to say. Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph speaking, But as for you, my brothers, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. No, God does not create evil. God does not decree that men do the horrible, wicked things that they do. But no, God did not plan for the Holocaust to kill as the millions of people that He did. God did not plan for rapes to occur. God did not decree for a child to be abused. But what God does is He plans to use that thing to redeem those who go through it. And that is what God plans and what God does. If God is sovereign so much so that there is no free will in man, the second thing, problem we see is this. It takes away man's responsibility and guilt for man's sin. After all, you cannot blame the puppet for his actions. The blame lies with the puppet master. After all, how can we blame Adam and Eve for sinning if God planned from the beginning that Adam and Eve sinned? Who's at fault there if God decreed it? The fault lies with God. How many of y'all remember this old motto? Talking about those of you who are in the NRA and such things. Guns don't kill people. People kill people. Never been a gun that ever got up out of the desk drawer, walked over and shot somebody. That's never happened. Who's the one that does the shooting? The person pulling the trigger. You can't blame a gun for murder. You can't put a gun on trial for murder. You put the person who pulled the trigger on trial. You cannot blame man for sin if man has no free will. Next, another problem is it makes God contradict himself. It makes God contradict himself. If God decreed from the beginning of time for his pleasure that there be men who would die and go to hell, then explain to me this verse. Turn in your Bible to the book of Ezekiel, chapter number 18. One of the most important chapters in the Old Testament. Most people never read the book of Ezekiel, but there are some powerful, powerful passages in the book of Ezekiel. One of the greatest is Ezekiel, chapter number 18. If you do devotions and you never really looked at this, Spend some time in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 18. What a powerful passage you find here. We're going to look at the very last verse. Ezekiel, chapter 18, verse number 32. Here is God speaking. God says this, For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. Hold on a minute. Calvinists say that God de decrees and does everything according to His good pleasure. That means He, before the beginning of time, unconditionally decreed that some people would be born, die, and go to hell. And that was His pleasure to do it. 
then how do you explain Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32, where it says that God takes no pleasure in the death of him that dieth? He doesn't want someone to die in their sins. He doesn't want anyone to go to hell. You know, there's never been one soul that ever brought a smile to God's face for going to hell. God desires no man to go to such a horrible place. Yet Calvinism teaches that's God's pleasure. Well, God contradicts himself if that's true. Let's look at another one. The book of James, chapter number 1. James, chapter number 1. Verse number 13. Many of y'all already know this verse. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Well, that's not true. If God decrees every person the deeds that they're going to do. And that cannot be true. God does tempt people to evil. Another verse that would contradict this is when the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says that God will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Calvinism is true and God has unconditionally decreed from the beginning of time that people go to hell according to His pleasure, then how can God say that He desires to have all men be saved? He can't say that. And then 2 Peter 3.9, we know this verse as well. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If God unconditionally again decrees, according to His sovereign pleasure, that people die and go to hell, He cannot truly say that He is willing that all men be saved. It makes God contradict Himself. It takes away man's responsibility and guilt for man's sin. It turns God into a monster. Also, it belittles God's love. We talked about this last week, but let me say again. God cannot love all men if He unconditionally chooses to send someone to hell. He cannot love all men. And Calvinists agree with me. A.W. Pink, one of the leading Calvinists, said, The fact is that the love of God is a truth for the saints only, and to present it to the enemies of God is to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. In other words, God only loves those who trust in Him. God only loves the believers. He does not love the lost. Of course, we know that contradicts the Bible, What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved who? The world. The saved? The church? No. God so loved the world. And considering that God does not love the enemies of God, then consider Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8 tells us that God didn't love us after salvation, but before salvation. The Bible says, but God commendeth or showed His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When did God start loving us? When we were saved? When we were lost. When we were yet sinners. Also, if God does not love sinners, 
and the lost, then Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, His message about love would be hypocritical. After all, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 44, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. If God does not love His enemies, isn't it hypocritical for Him to tell us to love ours? No, God loves everyone. And one other thing, considering God unconditionally decreeing that someone should die and go to hell before they could be born, before they could do anything on their own. i got a question for you. Wouldn't it be better to never create the person in the first place than to create a man for hell? Wouldn't it just be better for him never to exist at all? After all, consider the words of Jesus in Mark chapter number 14, verse 21 concerning Judas. This is what he said to Judas. The Son of Man indeed goeth, as it is written unto him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Notice the next line. Good were it for that man if he had never been born. And I have to honestly say, wouldn't it be better to have never been born than to die and go to hell for all eternity? It would be cruelty to create someone to suffer for all eternity. It is not love. God's sovereignty, so much so that there is no free will in man, belittles the love of God. It also turns God into a monster. It takes away the guilt of man and his responsibility for sin. It makes God contradict himself. So finally, is there another way to view God's sovereignty? And the answer is, yes, there is. There's another way to view it. I want you all to think this out. I believe that God does everything of His good pleasure. Whatever He desires to do, He does. And there is no one in this room that can stand up to God and say, why did you do that? He has the right to do whatever He wants. Even if I understand it or not. I agree with that. So let me propose this to you. God sovereignly decreed that man should be free to exercise moral choice. And man from the beginning has fulfilled that decree by making his choice between good and evil. When he chooses to do evil, he does not thereby contradict the sovereign will of God, but fulfills it. Inasmuch as the eternal decree decided not which choice the man should make, but that he should be free to make it. If in his absolute freedom, God has willed to give man limited freedom, who is there to stay his hand or say, what doest thou? Man's will is free because God is sovereign. A God less than sovereign could not bestow moral freedom upon his creatures. He would be afraid to do so. In order to explain this a little bit better to you, when I was little, I like to play board games. Anybody, when you're little, like to play board games? Uh, we can't afford the expensive ones like Monopoly, so we usually play checkers or um, chess. Me and my brother could play chess, and I always whooped them in chess. Joe, if you're watching, you know that's true. You always lost. All right. We, uh, we would play checkers or chess. Those are cheap games. Or if we didn't even have a board, we'd play tic-tac-toe. 
But did you ever come to a point when you were wanting to play a board game or even tic-tac-toe and you couldn't find anybody to play with you? Did you ever try to play yourself in any of those games? Anybody ever do that? You know what I always fell into doing? I knew what move I had to make in tic-tac-toe. You know, here's where you start off and then you, you do this one to block it. I got tired of losing, so you know what I started doing? I like X's, so I'd start off with the X's, and when I would do the O's, I would make the O's a little stupid so I could win. I didn't like just to break it even. Same thing in checkers. If I played myself in checkers, I always set it up because I love the color red for the red pieces to double jump and triple jump and be crowned and all that stuff. I started cheating because I was running both sides. Calvinists say God runs both sides of the, the board. He's, he's playing his side, and he's also playing the bad side. And what he does is he knows what moves to make it so he can do his double jumps and his triple jumps. That's pretty simplistic. I did that when I was a kid. It don't take much of a mind to do that. But rather, isn't it better to think of God not as that little kid playing tic-tac-toe or checkers, but to think of God as the master chess player. That when all the wickedness and evilness and evil designs of this world are mounted up against God, God knows what moves to make to make His will done. God is not the child playing both sides of the checkerboard. God takes the worst that man can do and He turns it for good his purpose that is the sovereignty of God a sovereign God has given man a limited free will God can always step in like he did with Pharaoh step in like he did with Judas and make a wicked person even do his free will in fact God said even of Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon God said the king of Babylon is my servant take the wickedness of this world and use it for His honor and glory. And He gives us the free will to choose what is right, to go, right and wrong. What this is saying is that God has given man limited free will to decide to do good or decide to do evil, to receive His gift of salvation or reject it. Understand this, brothers and sisters, if you choose to reject God's gift of salvation, when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ on that great judgment day, there will be only one person who is responsible for you to go to hell. It's not God. God loves the world. He's done everything He can to ensure that all men be saved. And how is that? He gave His Son, Jesus Christ. I ask you, my brother and sister, what more could God possibly do? But if man chooses to reject it, there is no one else to blame but that man for his eternal destination. In closing, let me tell you, God loves you and sent his son Jesus to die for your sins. You have the choice to receive God's free gift of salvation. If you have not done, done so, please receive it today. Amen. Let's all stand.